All right, if you would, please turn with me to Revelation chapter 4. And as you're turning there, I, I want you to just try to uh, picture in your mind your grade school. Okay, so get, a, get an image in your mind of your grade school. And do you remember the first day of grade school? I mean, some of you may, some of you may not. I remember very vividly first day of grade school because I was kind of excited, but mostly just completely freaked out and scared, right? I remember thinking, I'm going to probably just throw up, right? And, and I remember getting there, and it was, just, it was just like this huge, enormous red brick building, and the hallways were so long, and I thought, you know, every sixth grader is going to beat me up. I mean, they just looked absolutely huge. It's a really, 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 really scary moment. Now, if you've ever had the opportunity to go back to your grade school, right, it looks very different, doesn't it, right? The doorknobs are not here, they're here, right? And, and the hallways, are, they're not really that long and scary. And I'm pretty sure right now that I could beat up most sixth graders. You know, I feel confident in that. I, I don't feel nervous going back. To give you a little perspective, um, this is, this is my grade school. This is Bell Sherman Grade School in, in Ithaca, New York. And you probably look at that building and you go, Brian, that's tiny. And I go, exactly, right? That's exactly my point. It's, it's, it's tiny. We live across the street from Texas A&M University with 70,000 students. And so our perspective is different. My perspective is different. When I go back to that school, I don't see it the same way. Because I've grown, I've changed, my perspective is completely shifted. Now, what happens in Revelation chapters 4 and 5 is that Jesus invites John into the presence of the Father, into the very throne room of God to give him a new perspective. If this is what's happening in heaven, you're going to see everything happening on earth from a very, very different perspective. And, and John, he, he was troubled, right? In John's day, things were big and bad and scary, but God was on his throne, reigning from heaven. In our day, things are big and bad and scary sometimes, and yet God is on his throne. He's reigning. He's ruling. There are no rivals to his authority. And so what he invites us to do is to come with John into his presence, and our, our perspective on our own lives and what's happening on earth completely shifted by seeing the throne room of God. So if you're not there already, Revelation chapter 4, I want to begin reading in verse 1. John writes, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. So John begins, and he says, uh, after these things, that is, uh, after his vision in John chapter 1. Remember, he was given, in a sense, here's an outline of what I want you to write. I want you to write the things that you have seen. That's the vision of the glorified Jesus that he saw in chapter 1. And then I want you to write the things that are, the message to the seven churches that existed in John's day that we read about last week. And then Jesus says to him, I want you now to, the angel says, I want you to write the things that are after these things. But before we talk about the things that are going to happen on earth, I want you to see all of that from heaven's perspective. And so he says to, to John, 
I want you to come up here. There's a door open in heaven. He says, I want to invite you to come up here. And what does John see? The first thing he sees at the very center of heaven is a throne. And in fact, as you read through this chapter, you'll know that everything is looked at in perspective to the throne, on the throne, around the throne, before the throne. The throne is the focal point of John's vision. Now, I have done a lot of weddings now in my ministry life. And one thing that I've observed kind of across the board is that uh, groomsmen are clueless, right? So the groomsmen show up and they show up late to the rehearsal and then they come the wedding day and they forgot their shoes or they forgot to shower or, you know, they, 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 don't, they don't remember where they're supposed to stand, right? And so I tell them, I say, look, I just, I don't want you to look like an idiot. So here's all you, don't think on the wedding day. Like, don't think. All you've got to do is just focus on the bride, right? So if you're a groomsman, you're standing on this side, I said, wherever the bride is, that's where you look. You just focus on the bride. That's your only job. Just focus on the bride. Don't think about anything else. Don't make any decisions. Just focus on the bride. This is, that's your only job. Just stand where I tell you to stand and focus on the bride. You know, and then before the wedding, you're like, oh, you know, yeah, okay, well, what did he say again? I don't remember, you know, it's just like totally close. And they go, you know what would be really funny? You know what would be really funny is if we pretend that we lost the ring. And I go, you know, and they come up with all these ideas, like right before the wedding, I go, yeah, nobody's ever tried that before. And I go, no, 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 remember, this is not about you. It's about the bride uh, and the bride's mom, and I don't want to make her mad, right? So, <laughs> look, just, just focus on the bride. John's brought into the throne room of God, and he can't actually look at anything else. In fact, all of attention is directed toward the throne. And there's only one seated on the throne. Verse 2, he says, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and there was one sitting on the throne. Just one sitting on the throne. Isaiah had a similar vision of the throne room of God. And he recorded this. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, and the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who was calling out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Remember, in Isaiah's day, things were bad and scary. The king had just died, and they were surrounded by enemies on every single side, to the north and to the south and to the east. There were, there were enemies absolutely everywhere threatening them. Things were bad in John's day. Domitian was the ruler, and he had reinstituted worship of the emperor. He needed to be worshipped by all of his people in the Roman Empire as a god, and if they didn't worship him, he would take away their property, he would take away their jobs, he would take away their freedom, he would take away their lives. Things were really, really difficult. In Isaiah's day, he was struggling with the, this, the circumstances of his life, and then he's brought into the presence of God, and he sees God on his throne, and then he sees everything from a different perspective. God's not anxious. God's not nervous. He's sitting on his throne. He's ruling over all of creation from his place in heaven. Richard Foster wrote a really wonderful book I'd encourage you to read sometimes. It's called The Celebration of Discipline. In it, he said this, to think rightly about God is, in an important sense, to have everything right. 
Okay, to think rightly about God is, in a sense, to think rightly about everything. It's to get everything right, because if God is at the very center, then everything else will begin to make sense. Those scary sixth graders don't look so scary anymore. The doorknobs aren't here. They're here because God is on his throne. God is on his throne. He's ruling and he's reigning. Verse 3, and he said, He who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. John begins to struggle to find the words. And he says, you know, he was like this. He doesn't give a physical description of, of, of God. Instead, he says, he, he's like the brilliance of these gems. He's like beauty. He's like color. He doesn't know exactly how to describe him. I want you to keep your place here in Revelation. You can turn with me or not. I'm going to read to you uh, from the book of Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel also had a vision of the throne room of God. Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 26. Listen to how he describes it. He says, now above the expanse that was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne, like lapis lazuli in appearance, and on that which resembled a throne high up was a figure with the appearance of a man. Then I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upward, something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward, I saw something like fire, and there was a radiance around him. As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. And I heard a voice speaking. Ezekiel says, I don't really even know how to describe it. It's like lapis lazuli. It's like, it's like purple. It's brilliant. It's like sardius. It's like blood red. It's like a diamond shining. It's like, you know what it's like? It's like, it's like the beauty of a rainbow. And he's being pulled into the actual rainbow. Right? He's, he's present in, in the beauty of God. You ever been just completely ar arrested by beauty? We had a really pretty rainbow uh, couple weeks ago, and we have a text thread for all of Anderson staff, and man, pictures of that rainbow just stopped, started firing away because people just, we just stopped and we just looked. When you're in the mountains and, and they're covered with snow, it's, it's just, you have to just stop and look and enjoy. See a sunset? Pull over to the side of the road. I've got to take a picture of that. And John is, John's actually pulled into the middle of that beauty. He's seeing the glory of God. Chapter 1, verse 4. It says, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their head. Verse 5, Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. It is, it's visually overwhelming, and it's auditorially overwhelming. What does he hear? He sees, he, he sees flashes like lightning. That's what Ezekiel saw as well. It's like lightning just darting here and there. It was brilliant in its beauty, and the sound was like thunder. I'm, I'm reminded of uh, Moses's experience on Mount Sinai, chapter 19 of the book of Exodus. It says, so it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all of the people who were in the camp, they trembled. But they trembled. What had happened? Well, God had said, Moses, I want you to come up here. Come up. And when he was on the mountain, God said, I want to show you a vision, an image of what it's like in the throne room. And in fact, I'm going to have you take some notes because you're going to duplicate that on earth. You're going to create a tabernacle so that when people, the people of Israel are walking with me through the desert, they can look to the tabernacle and they can get a visual 
of what it might be like in heaven at this moment where God is seated on his throne. And when God is giving Moses that vision, it says there's thunder, there's lightning, that is, heaven is above earth, people, right? Heaven is above earth, and what heaven decrees happens on earth. Heaven gets the first word, heaven gets the last word. God is seated on his throne, and he is powerful. He is, in fact, the Almighty One. And the only proper response is worship. Verse 6 says, Before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, and in the center and around the throne four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf. And the third creature had the face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, then the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne, and they will worship him who lives forever and ever, and they will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, because you created all things, and because of your will they existed, and they were created. In the throne room of God, we're, we're introduced to some, some different characters. Right? God is in the center of the throne, and there's no competition for the throne, but around the throne there are worshipers. We see these these four angelic creatures. And if you look at Ezekiel's description, chapter Ezekiel 1, or Isaiah's description, chapter 6, of the seraphim, the burning ones, and the cherubim, the, the, the pure ones, and the guardians of, of God's holiness, these strong creatures, you see some similarities in the description. Now, why these particular four faces? Uh, I don't know. And I, I don't know. I gotta, I, I, I've been receiving emails about the book of Revelation. I say, well, this one I feel confident about. This one, I don't know. Those four faces, I don't know. Maybe it represents... The, the realms over which God rules, earth and sky and man and beast, maybe it represents different attributes of God reflected in his creatures, his, his wisdom and his strength and his dignity. I don't know. The, the important point to note here is that they were created just for the purpose of worship. It, the reason they exist is to worship. Verse 8, the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night, they do not cease to say, holy, 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 is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. All that they're doing is shouting out praise to God. We're also introduced to, to 24 elders sitting around the thrones. Who are the elders? I don't know the answer to that either. That we're not told who the elders are. Some people think uh, they're also angels, so they're kind of like the council of angels in Job chapter 1. I personally think they're probably representatives of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of the church. I think they're representatives around the throne. But the important thing to note is what they're doing is worship. What they're doing is worship. They take their crowns, which represent authority, and they throw them at God's feet. That is, all authority, all rulership, all might, all power derives from the throne. They fall down and they worship. And why do they worship? They worship because God is, he's beautiful. Right? To be glorious means, among other things, that God is absolutely beautiful. What first catches John's attention is the absolute 
beauty of God. He said it's like, it's like being absorbed into a rainbow. They worship God because he is holy. Holy, holy, holy. He is set apart. He is set apart. He's distinct. There's none like him. He is the almighty. That is literally the all-powerful one. He was and he is and he is to come. He is the eternal God. He lives forever and ever. He is the one who created all things. Nothing exists apart from what he created. There was nothing and then God spoke. Out of nothing he made. Consequently, he has the right to rule and reign over all things because he is the maker of all things and he has the power to rule over all things because he is the all-powerful one, the holy, of God, holy God. There is nothing and no one like him and so all of heaven worships. They know what to do. They fall on their faces before the Lord. Now, have you ever been in a place where you don't know what to do? Um, I've been in, a couple times invited to these events, and I don't really know what to do, right? I, know, I don't know how to dress. I don't know how, how to act. I begin to you know, send texts. So how do, what do you wear to this thing? And what are we supposed to do? I remember one time, Tristan and I got an, an invitation to go uh, to this uh, kind of small lecture that uh, George H.W. Bush and Barbara Bush were giving. And afterwards, there was going to be a reception. So we went, we watched the lecture, and then we got to go to this little reception afterwards. And before going into the reception, we were all given instructions. So if you'd like to meet the president, you can meet the president, but don't run at him, right? Don't, don't, rush, don't rush at the president because you'll probably right, get a you know, broken leg in prison, right? You're not, this, it's not going to work well. And don't, don't thrust out your hand to meet the president, right? You go up to the president. If he reaches out his hand to shake your hand, then you can respond and you say, Nice to meet you, Mr. President, right? And this is how you address him, whatever. I'm like, this is all really very stressful, right? It's really very stressful. Well, you know, in heaven, when God reveals himself, no one wonders what to do, Boom. right? Any and every single time throughout the entire scripture, when a person gets just a glimpse of the beauty of the glory of God, they're just on their face, just com completely all out because he's worthy. He's worthy. I'm going to show you a photo here. This is um, the world's largest palace. The world's largest palace. It was uh, constructed during the reign of uh, Nicolae Ceausescu, the uh, uh, Romanian dictator. Uh, he was dictator from like 1965 to 1989, I think. Uh, the palace wasn't actually completed until 1997, but it's, it's absolutely enormous. It's 3.5 million square feet. So he built a home for himself, 3.5 million square feet. To put that in perspective, the average single-family dwelling in the state of Texas is 2,000 square feet. So this is uh, 1,750 houses, right? That, that's how big it was. And they had to knock down like 20 churches and thousands of homes and apartments just to build this thing. It's got um, it like 10 billion pounds of marble and 1.5 billion pounds of steel and bronze it's got one chandelier that weighs 6,000 pounds. I mean, it's absolutely and utterly enormous. Uh, he never got to live there because uh, he was deposed and convicted, tried, and executed. So no one actually lives here. It's just a museum. Most palaces of the world are museums. People don't live in most palaces of the world. Why? Because earthly kingdoms fall. Listen to Daniel's words, Daniel chapter 7. It says, his dominion, that is God's dominion, is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. It will go on forever and ever and ever. So church, we just, we just don't need to get freaked out about elections and recessions and cultural decay because 
God is on his throne. And he will reestablish his kingdom on earth. That's what the rest of John's vision is like. Chapter 5, his vision continues, and it moves from being centered on the throne itself to the Son. Read with me, chapter 5 and verse 1. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. So th there's a problem in heaven. And the problem is this. What's happening in heaven is not being reflected on earth. Uh, on, in heaven, all praise and honor and glory is being given to God, but on earth there is active rebellion. And in the midst of this tension, right, John's been called up from earth in his vision, but he knows what's happening on earth still, but he sees something very different happening in heaven. He sees that these things do, do not really coincide, but then he sees a scroll. And what's on the scroll? Well, we may not know yet. We're going to find out. But John anticipates. In fact, the best, rest of the book of Revelation is about what's written on that scroll. And John knows what's written on that scroll. We don't yet. We're going to find out. But he understands what's written on that scroll is God's plan to reestablish his authority from heaven over all of earth. This, this will be God's plan. The problem is it's sealed up. It's sealed up perfectly and completely. There are seven seals on the scroll. And who's going to take it and break open those seals and begin to reestablish God's authority on earth and set all things right? Who's going to do it? And everyone's looking around. Who's going to take the scroll? Who's going to break the seals? Who's going to do it? And there's no one who's worthy. And so John weeps. Because this, in fact, has been the longing of his life. This has been the longing of the lives, I would argue, of believers throughout the century. Maranatha, Lord, please come quickly. Lord, please set things right. Everything that we've broken through our sins, set it right. In fact, when Jesus, remember when he, he was teaching his disciples to pray, he said, here's how you should pray. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed, which means holy. Holy, holy, holy be your name, your attributes, your, your works, your strength. May they be set apart. Our Father, who is in heaven, on his throne, hallowed, holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Could we have these two things match? Jesus says, if you want to align yourself with the priorities of God, this is how you pray. Let heaven come down to earth. God, please, would you make it happen? And John's been longing for this for his whole life. He's been suffering for it. And now here in front of him is the scroll in which God has his plan for, for reestablishing his authority on earth, and no one can break it open and get the process started. And so John weeps. I began to weep greatly. Because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Then one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the scroll and its seven seals. Now the angel makes two really important allusions to Old Testament promises here in this verse. First comes from Genesis chapter 49. Jacob was prophesying about his sons and he said this, you our lion's cub, Judah. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches and lies down like a lion, like a lioness. Who will rouse him 
The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from, from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs. The nations will obey him. What is, what is the, until he comes to whom it belongs? What's the it? What's the ruler's staff, right? So you picture, he says, Judah is like a lion. And there's going to be one who comes from Judah. The scepter is right between the lion's paws, and there will be one who's worthy to come and take it. There will be a lion from the tribe of Judah. In his strength, he will come. He will take the scepter, and the nations will obey him. He will rule over every kingdom on earth. The second allusion that's made to Isaiah chapter 11. It says, A shoot will grow out of Jesse's root stock. A bud will sprout from his roots. The Lord's spirit will rest on him. A spirit that gives extraordinary wisdom. A spirit that provides the ability to execute plans. A spirit that produces absolute loyalty to the Lord. See, Jacob prophesied, he said, The ruler from Israel will come through Judah's family. And later God said, I'm going to make a promise to David, that is Jesse's father. Jesse, your son, David, he will be the one through whom that ruler will come from the tribe of Judah. A shoot will grow out of Jesse's root stock. A bud will sprout from his roots. That is, it will be a son of David. It will be a, one that comes from your lineage. And in this vision, the angel says to John, stop weeping. He's here. That, that lion is here, and that lion is, a, is about to roar. Verse 6, And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing, as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all of the earth. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. Now, have you ever... Um, seen something you didn't expect to see. You just kind of have to adjust a little bit. I remember one time, uh, Trish and I had been married three or four years, and I wanted her to go back with me and see where I had lived in Prague and meet some of my friends there in Prague. And so uh, we, were, we were walking through the streets of Prague. We're having this really wonderful time. And we passed this uh, older couple. This older couple walked past us. And we walked about another 100 yards. And then we looked at each other. We go, we know them. <laughs> we know them. And it just all of a sudden, I mean, it just took like 100 yards to just dawn on us. There's some of our friends, uh, Ernie and Hilda, who are from Canada that we met in Kazakhstan. I mean, like, and that now here we are, we're seeing them in Prague. So we turned around and we just ran down the street, you know, we're like, Ernie, Hilda, right? Because we're, you know, obnoxious Americans. We don't care. We're like, Ernie, Hilda, Ernie, right? And we chased them down. So we're like, how, how completely random is this? But it just, it didn't register, like, so out of context. John is told, the lion from the tribe of Judah, he has overcome so as to take the scroll and to break its seals. He's the one who's going to set all things right. And John turns to see the voice, and instead of seeing a lion, he sees a lamb. And not just a lamb, but literally a lamb looking as if it had just been slaughtered. But it's living. And that really arrests John's attention. Because it's not what he was expecting to see. 
Listen to these words from the prophecy of Isaiah. It says, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Now, years ago, I, I had a, a Jewish friend, an older man, and I was trying to share Christ with him. So I asked him, do you have a Bible? And of course, his Bible doesn't include what we call the New Testament. It's just the Torah. It's the, what we call the Old Testament. But he had a Bible, and I pulled out the Bible, and I said, can we read this together? And we read Isaiah 53 together, and I said, who is this suffering servant? And he said, that's suffering servant. He said, that's us. That's the Jews. That's Israel. And I said, but how can Israel pay for Israel's sins? So I think that that's your Messiah. He goes, Messiah doesn't suffer. Messiah conquers. Why was Jesus a stumbling block to the Jews? Because he was a crucified Messiah. Robert Mount's commentator made this observation. He said, in one brilliant stroke, John portrays the central theme of the New Testament revelation, victory through sacrifice. John's expecting the lion, and the lion will come, and he will come, and he will conquer. But what he sees first is a lamb, as if slaughtered, who won the victory and the right to break the seals because he paid for men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. He rescued them. He redeemed them so that they would belong to the Lord. Read with me verse 10 again. He says, you are, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain. And you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Why were you created? Why do you exist? Genesis chapter 1. You and I were made in the image of God so that we could reflect the nature of God and rule and reign, that is, extend his authority over all the earth in relationship with him for his honor and for his glory. That's why we were made. Sin disrupted all that. It tarnished the image of God within us, but God's plan for humanity, for you and for me, has not changed at all. So in Genesis chapter 12, he came to Abraham and he said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that in you, men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation can be blessed. That is, I want to recreate a family for myself of people who represent me. Psalm chapter 8, David would write, what is man that you even think of him? Or the son of man that you, you even contemplate him, and yet you've made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have caused him to rule over the works of your hand. Oh, God, I can't even imagine it, David said. But you've given mankind dominion over all things. Jesus Christ purchased you for the Father, rescued you from the debt of your sin, so that you could once again reflect his image in your life, and one day, when Jesus returns, exercise dominion over all things. But it's the lamb who had to be slaughtered first to pay the price for our sins. That's, that, is, that is the paradox of the Bible. Now, for those of you who don't know, if you know Jesus this morning, 
You have a lot of different concepts of Jesus. I think Revelation 4 and 5 give you a beautiful picture of him. He's the eternal son of God who took on human flesh, human form. He became a man so that he could suffer and die to pay the price of our sins. Like we have a debt before God. That debt creates separation. And because of that separation, we can't fulfill God's design for our lives. Jesus Christ died to pay that debt. Now, we would think, well, man, I need to earn it. I need to work harder. I need to be the lion, right? I need to be strong. And God says, no, in fact, you're not. You can't be. What I need you to do is to fall on your knees before Jesus and say, there's nothing I have to offer you. Thank you for dying for my sins. And just say, just say I need the gift. Hey, that's what faith is. It's simply reaching out and receiving by faith the gift of eternal life and forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. And I would encourage you, if you've never done that, today would be a really great moment to see Jesus as he actually is, as your Savior and Redeemer. Verse 11, John continues to look. He says, I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying amen and the elders fell down and they worshiped. And they fell down before the throne because God is God. And they fell down before Jesus, the Son of God, because the Son of God is God. And they worshiped. Right? What's, what's the primary activity of heaven? It's just, it's worship. That's what heaven does. Heaven worships. And I would say, you know, for, for us, we don't, we don't use this language of worship in our everyday, but we do worship all the time. You realize that? Because worship means to proclaim or ascribe worth to something, to say something is valuable. I'm, I'm acknowledging the value of something. We actually worship all the time. We worship every day. We had a really big worship service yesterday in College Station at our shrine known as Kyle Field. What did we do? Well, many of us sacrificed a lot of money to buy tickets. And then we sacrificed an entire day, and we sacrificed uh, exorbitant money to park close so we wouldn't have to walk, but others were not able to do that. So you walked a long distance and then you paid an exorbitant amount of money for very average food to have the opportunity to ascribe worth to our team, right? Not cheers, but yells. We yell. We yell together and we all have the yells memorized and we yell these things together and then we sing, right? And then we're going to sing together. We're going to sing about the value and the worth of our school and the fact that other schools are not so valuable, right? We're, gonna, we're singing and we're praising and we're worshiping and some of some of us who are under 22, we actually stood the entire time ready to go in and saying, yes, this is my team. I'm a part of this team. Call me in if you need me. I'm here for you. It's worship. We're saying this is what we value. We're going to give it our time. We're going to give it our money. We're going to give it our physical energy. We're going to give it all. That's what worship is, right? It is the engagement of the entire being or the entire person in ascribing worth to something. Listen to these words. I think I lost it. I'm going to read it to you. I have it written down here. William Temple, he said, For worship is the submission of all our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of mind with his truth, the purifying of imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, 
the surrender of will to his purpose. See what he's saying there? It is all of our nature submitted to God. It's the conscience, it's the mind, it's the imagination, it's the heart, it is the will. So what do you see in heaven? They're falling down, which literally in Greek and in Hebrew is the word for worship. To worship means to fall down, right? They fall down. And then they shout, they're shouting, they're shouting praise, and then they're singing. They're singing old songs, they're singing new songs, they're shouting out, they're singing, they're praising. Throughout the scripture we see there are other ways that people worship, that is they surrender, they, they give, they sacrifice, they sacrifice gifts and talents and abilities, they serve through their, their, their labors, their efforts, their jobs, right? All of these things through are, are opportunities to say God is valuable, God is worthy, and everything is involved. The body is involved, right? They're, they're bending the knee, they're lifting up hands, they're falling down, they're shouting, the body is involved. The mind is involved. They're, they're understanding now this is who God really is. They're seeing God in, on his throne. They're seeing truth about God, so their worship is according to truth. The body's involved. The mind is involved. The emotions are involved. They, they long to do this in heaven. Their hearts are inflamed with love for God and gratitude for God. The will is involved. They're choosing to say God is more valuable than anything else. And what you're going to see in the rest of the book of Revelation is some say God is more valuable and some say God is not more valuable it's a choice of the will. So the mind is involved, the emotions are involved, the will is involved, the body is involved, the entire person is involved in saying God is worthy of all worship. Worthy. To be worthy. Worthy means literally balancing the scales. On one side of the scales is the beauty and the holiness and the strength and the eternality of God. And on the other side, our worship. Is our worship giving all that God should have? So there's a problem. Uh, what's happening in heaven is not happening on earth. What God actually deserves on earth isn't happening. But we as his people can give him what he deserves. That's our worship. That's our worship. So, a little application exercise for this week. Okay? I want to encourage you to um, read Revelation 4 through 5 again. Uh, you might want to do that with a couple friends. Just read Revelation 4 through 5, read it out loud, and as you do so, I want you to take some notes and list out the attributes of God that you see. You know, the beauty of God and the holiness of God, and describe that. What, what's going on here? Who is God? So list those attributes, and then I want you to take some time and out loud praise him for those things. Thank you, God, that you are eternal and you are everlasting. As a result, you see all things. I thank you that your spirit portrayed as having seven eyes. You see everything that's transpiring on the earth. Father, I, I praise you for that. So why don't you take some time, study that passage, think about that deeply about that passage, praise from that passage. Then the next thing I want you to do is I want you to pick out a song of worship. Um, maybe you want to pick out one that we sang this morning. Get on Apple Music, get on Spotify, pick out a song of worship, and I want you to sing to the Lord this week. Now for some of you, you go, Adam. I don't, it's fine. Sing in your closet, sing in the shower, sing in your car. If you don't want to sing in front of other people, that's fine. But I want you to practice singing and shouting to the Lord. Okay? I want you to stretch yourself a little bit. Sing to the Lord. Uh, my grandfather, uh, he really, he really loved the Lord. He couldn't sing <laughs> at, well at all. Um, he didn't get invited by Corby to step on the stage. It just didn't happen. So, uh, but I'm told he, he drove a bulldozer, right? He, he built roads. And my dad said, 
when he would drive up to see his dad, you could hear his voice singing hymns over the bulldozer because he just loved the Lord. He just loved the Lord. So I want to encourage you to, to sing, to shout. I want to also stretch you a little bit to put your body in a posture of worship. You can't miss the fact that throughout Scripture, we're actually commanded to do things with our body because you don't do anything apart from your body, right? You sleep with your body, you eat with your body, you go to a game with your body, you worship with your body. You do Everything you do, you do in your body. And so we're commanded to, to use our bodies in worship. And one of the things that I've discovered is that uh, my, the posture of my body can either reflect what's going on in my heart or it can actually direct what's going on in my heart. So sometimes it reflects what's going on in my heart, right? Sometimes I'll be in a staff meeting and I'll see a staff member go like this. I go, I know what you're thinking. And I had one, one staff guy, when he'd get frustrated, he would just actually just bang his head on the table. And I go, you know, let's not do that. That's, that's just, you know, I, use your words. Um, so sometimes it's just a reflection. It's just a reflection, right? And spont- spontaneously, right? I mean, our team scores and you get a kiss, right? It's just spontaneous, right? That's just... It, it's just a reflection of your heart, but also your, your, your body can direct your heart. Maybe your heart's feeling a bit hard and stubborn, but you know there's something between you and the Lord. Get on your knees. Get on your face and confess. It's hard to stay proud when you're on your knees. And all you can do is you can look up and you realize you're low, but God is great. I want to challenge you. And again, maybe that's some, something you, it's not part of your, your history, your culture, your practice. You want to do that in your own closet, alone with the Lord. But I want to encourage you to stretch yourself. We are actually commanded to bend the knee before the Lord. When people saw God in his glory, they, they were flat out. They weren't even on their knees. They were, they were on their faces before the Lord. Lift up your hands and praise offer, make an offering to the Lord. I have friends when they pray, they they make an offering of their lives to the Lord. They confess their sins, they lay it down, and then they receive God's blessings. Take those blessings in. Let me set the scene for you. Right now, at this very moment, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of angels, and there are millions of of believers from previous generations that are surrounding the throne. And you know what they're doing? They're just worshiping. They're worshiping. And John said, was told, hey, I want to give you a vision. I want, I want to open up the throne room of God for you, John, and I want you to write it down so that every succeeding generation can see this is what's actually happening in heaven. And when you have these moments, you're being invited into their presence. And what you're going to do for all of eternity is you're going to join in that choir. You're going to sing. So why don't we get good at it now, right? Why don't we practice now? Why don't we become better worshipers now. A few years ago, I felt like that was the conviction God laid on my heart. So why don't you become a better worshiper? Why don't you learn how to give all that you are to the Lord in worship? So as we close this, we're going to do together. We're going to, if you would, just please stand with us. We're going to worship together, and I want to encourage you. Maybe it's a moment of conviction for you, and you just need to be silent and pour out your heart before the Lord. Maybe you need to come to the front and get on your knees. Maybe you need to lift up your hands. Maybe you need to sit or stand. I want to encourage you just in this moment to feel free to give all that you are and all that you have to the Lord in worship. Father, let us be free before you to give our all because you are worthy. 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 Worthy.